KMTT, Kimitzion Teitzei Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Shabbat Shuvah. Hey Tishrei, Tafshin Samech Tet, 5769. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Rosh Hashanah is now behind us. Shabbat Shuvah as we mentioned, is right before us, and Yom Kippur is a week away. And we continue on our journey through thoughts about tshuva. We also are connected to Sefer Devarim. I'm going to split up the Arab Shabbat program into two parts um, this week. I'm going to talk about almost Parshat HaShavua, Perhaps it would have been Parshat HaShavu on a different year when Nitzavim and Vayelach are together. This this week we only have Parshat Vayelach, but I'm going to allow myself to just go back a little bit into Parshat Nitzavim. Ki ha-mitzvah azot asher anochi metzavecha hayom lo nifleiti mimcha velo rechokahi. This mitzvah that I'm commanding you today is not removed from you and not far away from you. Lo v'ashamayim hi. It is not in the heavens that you might come to say, who will go up to the heavens and bring it down to us in order to that we should do what is being told to us. And it is not on the other side of the sea that someone will have to cross the sea and bring it to us in order for us to do it. It is close to you. It is both within your. It's within your grasp to do it. It's within your mouth and within your heart to, to fulfill the the, the the mitzvah, this commandment. <coughs> the <coughs> commentaries have different opinions as to what mitzvah, what commandment the the verses you are referring to. Kia mitzvah hazot, which mitzvah? There are two opinions. The mitzvah is the Torah in its entirety, or perhaps the mitzvah of tshuva, the, re- the mitzvah of repenting. And of course, the truth is, is that both of these interpretations are one and the same. The Torah in its entirety, all the mitzvot, are of course the mirror image of tshuva. Tshuva, we repent in order so that we should fulfill the entire Torah. The Torah is given on the basis of the mitzvah of tshuva. We inevitably are going to err, we are going to make mistakes, and we have built into the Torah an option of correcting our mistakes and fixing our mistakes. So Torah and tshuva are in fact almost synonymous terms. We fulfill the Torah in its entirety, and we are able to do that only through the mitzvah of tshuva, the mitzvah of repenting, which allows us to correct our mistakes, fix our mistakes, and make a different future. But what is this <coughs> idea that the psukim describe here, that this mitzvah of tshuva or of Torah, not being far away from us, but being close to us, and not being something that Perhaps someone needs to cross the sea to bring it to us, or someone has to go up into the 
heavens and bring it down to us. What is the Torah negating here? What what would we have thought? When it comes to other areas of knowledge, take two examples, law and medicine. As an average citizen in the country, I... In a country, not the country, in a country, I am, it is necessary for me to have a relationship of sorts with law and with medicine. But to that end, I do not need to be intimate with the laws of the country, nor do I need to be intimate, have intimate knowledge of all the minute details of medicine. For that purpose, we send individuals to law school, we send individuals to medical school, and they have an intimate knowledge of their these areas of knowledge. And now I come to them when I need legal counseling, I'll go to a lawyer, and that doesn't make me relate to the details of the corpus of law. And if I have a medical issue, I will go to a doctor, and he will explain to me, based on his knowledge, what it is that I have to do. And I will not necessarily, and in most cases I will not, be able to delve into the details of the medical issues surrounding whatever medical issue I am dealing with. And in that sense, I am removed from the corpus of law, and I am removed from the corpus of medical issues, and I stand back and send someone to law school, I send someone to medical school, I or society does more precisely, sends an individual or individuals to law school, medical school, so they can connect us, the rest of the people, to medicine, to law. We cannot all have a knowledge of law, and we cannot all have a knowledge of medicine, therefore we send individuals to connect us to these areas of knowledge. But in fact, we do not connect with those areas. We have some sort of intermediary who connects us. We do not connect directly. We still don't know much about law after talking to the lawyer. We still don't know much about medicine after talking to the <clears throat> doctor. But whatever knowledge we need, we get connected to through the lawyer and through the doctor. Not so is the Torah, says the Torah. The Torah says you do not need someone to cross the sea and to go up to the, the, the sky, to the heavens, in order to connect you to the Torah. You yourself are able to connect to the Torah. You are not only able to connect to the Torah, but in fact, you are commanded to connect to the Torah, to relate to the Torah. And this is the, if we may call it, the democratic nature of the Torah. That the Torah demands, invites, challenges, challenges each and every individual amongst us to connect directly to the Torah. Not through other individuals, but directly ourselves. We are commanded to learn the Torah. We must learn the Torah, open the Torah, and learn the Torah. Sure, we'll have questions that we'll not be able to answer on our own. 
And then we'll go to our local Orthodox rabbi and ask them what we should do on a specific halachic level. But as far as our relationship to Torah, our relationship to Torah is our relationship to God. And we have to open the books and we have to learn and we have to relate to the Torah directly. It is not law and medicine that we send individuals to law school, to medical school, across the sea, up to the heavens, and relate through them. Our relationship with Torah is ultimately our relationship with God. And that is a relationship that we cannot do through any intermediary. We must relate directly to God. And that is, that are, that is the meaning of these verses in Parshat Nitzavim that we need to relate directly to the Torah, to God. And this is not something that is out of our grasp, this is something that is within our grasp, and we are demanded to do so. This is about the little person. The little person doesn't need the big person to connect them. They can connect. That is what the Torah is telling us. And this... On, on, on a certain level relates to something that we related to on Rosh Hashanah, and that is the Haftarah. Chana, just a average Jewish wife is having a hard time conceiving a child. What does she do? She just prays to God. She faces God and she prays to Him. In fact, she prays to Him in a manner which isn't so... Uh, doesn't make Eli the Kohen Gadol very happy. Maybe she even went a little bit out of the box. And she prays to God. She just pours her, her soul out in front of God. And what happens? She has Shmuel Hanavi, the person who ultimately established the kingdom in Am Yisrael from this small, insignificant woman who just decided to pray to God. That means we all have the capacity for connecting, for reaching out directly to God. At this point, I'm going to... uh, We'll take a short break to listen to Rav Tavori, and uh, we'll leave a little bit longer for our conclusion and our conclusionary remarks at the end of the program. This coming week, Arav Yom Kippurim is the yard site of Moreno, Rabbi Yitzhak Zev, Salavechik. The nickname known in yeshivas, Rabbi the Gries, almost requires no further elaboration. The Gries, of course, the son of Rabbi Chaim of Brisk, was born on Chav Tishrei. The date will be important a little later, in 1886, in the city of Alajan. Being brought up in the house of Reb Chaim meant that he was involved in learning Torah at a very young age. A child who showed such great intelligence was expected to learn difficult topics, present his own original ideas from a very, very young age. His bar mitzvah speech was 
on Sukkot. The topic was about putting on tefillin on Chol He wrote the speech by himself, so much delved into the sugya that people who were known to be the Tamirei Chachamim were so impressed that they changed their particular minhag of putting on tefillin based on, on his analysis of the sugya. In one of the biographies of Revelville, the author quotes that his older brother, Rav Moshe Salavechik, who was the father of Rav Yosef Dov Halevi from Boston, Rav Moshe, the older brother of Rav Velvel, had a custom of putting on tefillin chalamayit. But when his younger brother said this shear at his own bar mitzvah, it convinced him not to put on tefillin anymore on chalamayit. The brisker tradition of not putting on tefillin chalamayit has been apparently the subject of some dispute. In the Haggadah of the, that's called the Haggadah Lebeis Brisk, they say that the reason they didn't put on tefillin on Cholamoid is because they felt that anyway you're supposed to wear tefillin all day. So we're mevatel the mitzvah by not wearing tefillin all day. So there's no inherent difference of skipping a day of tefillin. And since there is a machlokas whether to put on tefillin Cholamoid, you might as well accept the opinion not to. The Rav, Rav, Moshe, Rav Yosef Dov HaLevi Salavechik, printed in his Sefer, in the Shiurim that he printed, the Zecher Abba Mari, in the memory of his, of his father, Rav Moshe, he mentioned there that the Brisker tradition had been not to put on tefillin because they paskined that there was Kedushas Hayom of, of Cholamoid. And that Kedushas Hayom prohibited one from putting on tefillin, not because of any Sophic, but because they were Machriya. The story that Rav Moshe put on tefillin until the Brisker Rav gave the Bar Mitzvah Drasha is I said printed in the in the book of the biography of the Brisker Rav. One of the biographies, which was written in uh, originally in Hebrew and translated into English by a fellow named Meller, Rabbi uh, Shimon Yosef Meller, told the story this way. Biskar Rav, uh, as I said, grew up as a child and he was known to be a, 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 an Ilui. Someone said he really was never an Ilui because he was a gone from childhood. An Ilui usually said about a person who's young, a little bit wild, a little bit almost eccentric, but uh, very, very bright. And uh, eventually the Ilui straightens out and becomes a gone. They said about the Biskar Rav that he was a gone from the, from the time of, of childhood. He never went through the stage of being an Ilui. He, uh, was married at a fairly uh, in 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 Beis Shvat of nineteen ten, when he was approximately twenty four years old. He married the granddaughter of the Imrebina to a very well known rabbinic family, and obviously spent those years learning. the The son of Reb Chaim took his father's place at a fairly young age. In 1918, Chaim was Nifter, and they appointed the Brisker Rav to be the Rav of Brisk, and that's the, the name that he was called, is the Brisker Rav. He became the Rav of Brisk in 1918. He was involved in the world of Chesed, of Brisk, which of course was a family tradition. People used to say about Reb Chaim that he was a gon, of course, in learning, but he was a gon in chesed. And uh, sometimes they talked about the fact that when the Matseva of Reb Chaim, they wanted to say hachosid, that he was very involved in Gemilas Chasadim, the advice of the family was anybody who was involved in Rabbanus has to understand the primary 
primary responsibility of the Rav, of the town, is to be involved in Gemilas Chasadim, and the stories, of course, are legendary about the Chesed done both by his father, Reb Chaim, and both by Reb Velvel in the city of Brisk. However, at the same time, in Brisk, he continued spreading Torah and his particular style of Lamdas, the Brisker Derech. I personally knew some of the Talmidim who were famous in the yeshivas of Europe, who used to go for a while to study, to get the Brisker Derech, and used to go to Reb Velvel. Rav Fishman, uh, one of my chavrusas, uh, was Tzvi Fishman, his father, went to learn by the Briskerov, Rav Gurelik, a Rebbe in Mayu, in Yeshiva University that I spoke about a few weeks ago, went and he spent a few years learning by the Briskerov. Rav Simcha Kaplan, who later became the Rav of Tzvat, was also one of the people from the, who learned in the Mir, but he wanted to learn by Rav Velvel as well. There was a Chabura of people who were later known as great Gedolim, great Rosh Yeshiva, who were Talmidim of Revelvel, and to them he was the person that they always called the Rav. When Rav Gurelik talked about the Rav, it was known that he meant Revelvel, the Brisker Rav. When the plight of the Jews in Europe turned very precarious, to put it mildly, the uh, people all looked for a way to get out of Europe, in um, approximately 1941, 1940, 1941, the Biskerov, as well as a group of other people, looked for a place and a way to get out. Um, there was a Rav in Montreal, people were given, going to be given certificates to leave the country. And obviously there was a major line in the uh, office and the, it was obviously a time of to- utter confusion and chaos. People really desperate to try to reach the line when the Briskerov came in and he took his place in the end of the line. Uh, Le Baron told me that people offered the Briskerov to switch places with them, to give them their place in line. And uh, as is typical... Uh, of the Bisker approach to Chesed, the Bisker chose to meet us, Revelvel refused and waited in line according to the line when he came in, and eventually he did get a certificate, and he decided to go to Eretz Yisrael. There was a big discussion whether people should go to America or people should go to Eretz Yisrael. The Bisker Rav chose Eretz Yisrael because he felt that the religious situation in Eretz Yisrael was much better than it would be in America, although he disapproved very, very strongly of Zionism, and he really wanted nothing to do with the Zionist movement at all, but he nevertheless felt he wanted to come to live in Eretz Yisrael, to come to live in Yerushalayim. When he did come to Eretz Yisrael, he arrived in Eretz Yisrael on Chaf Aleph Shvat, of 1941. He came, the first arrived in Haifa, came eventually to Yerushalayim. The uh, respect that he was shown immediately when he came in, let's remember, in 1941, he was already known as the Gadol. He was not uh, that young. He was about 55 years old. And the Gadole Yerushalayim welcomed him. The, it was a misibah, a special ceremony to welcome him where the, some of the guests were Rav Yaakov Moshe Chalap, Rav Bissizaman Meltzer, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank. And these people put up a sign that Ari Olami Bavel, this 
giant of Torah came to live in Eretz Yisrael from, from, from the Gola. He moved, of course, to Yerushalayim and lived in a very simple uh, apartment in Yerushalayim. Began to learn with people in Yerushalayim the kolel that was known as the kolel brisk, specialized in learning kachim. And this was had been a tradition in the brisker family to learn kachim, and his kolel was a, a, a small kolel at first. Today there are branches and branches. There are the many different branches of the brisker kolel, and it's known as the, the place of learning where primarily kachim is still learned. Many of the Talmidim that learned by the Biskarov at that time became in their own rights Rashi Yeshiva, Gedolim in the world. I, for example, learned in Karim Biyavna and Rav Goldvecht, Rav uh, Chaim Yaakov Goldvecht was the um, Rosh Yeshiva of Karim Biyavna, the founding Rosh Yeshiva, and he always prided himself upon being a Talmud of the Biskarov. He used to walk around saying he was a Talmud of the Biskarov. He also learned by the Chazonish. But the first day that I came to Karim Biyavna, Rav Goldvecht called me into the office and told me a piece of Torah, a very well-known piece of Torah by, by Rav Velvel about uh, Kibud Harav, the difference between Kibud Harav and Kibud Harav HaMufak. And he read it into the Rambam in a way that seems so conclusive that this is exactly what the Rambam meant. One of the styles that people appreciate by Revelville is after Revelville pointed it out, people could understand So, what was so difficult. It was just so obvious. The genius of Revelville, the brisker genius, was to say, almost show things that were so obvious, but for some reason nobody had ever mentioned it before. When I understood the Chiddush. I was a young boy coming to Karim Biyavna. Rav Goldvich told me very proudly, this is a Chiddush he personally heard from Rav Velvel. And he said to me, When I told him that not only had I heard about Rav Velvel, but the year or so before I had come to Karim Biyavna, Rav Velvel had passed away. And I went to the Hespid that Rav Salavechik, Moreno Rav Yosef Dov Halevi Salavechik, gave for his uncle, the Biskarov, Rav Goldvecht wanted me to repeat him as much as I could remember from that Hesped. Of course, that Hesped, which the Rav eloquently delivered on his uncle's, when his, after his uncle's uh, Shloshim, was printed and became uh, some an essay that's learned for many, many reasons. The whole approach to the, Bris, to the Brisker Derech is expounded upon there in the difference between Erisin and Nesuin is mentioned there in a footnote that there are Chidushe Torah that were put in at the same time people who remember well mention that there are other parts of the Hes- of the Hesped that were not even written that were just said at the time but Rav Goldvecht was a Talmud of the Brisker Rav one of the uh, other Talmudim that I knew personally was a person named Nebelia Horovitz who lives in Yerushalayim, and he recounted a story to me about the Briskerov, which is also very typical of the Briskers. His wife, Rebele Horowitz's wife, gave birth to twins just before Yom Kippur. Um, he went to the Briskerov to tell him of the uh, good news that his wife had, had uh, twins. 
So the Biskir Rav said to him, it was just before Yom Kippur, he said to him, Mazel tov, Mazel tov, but please do me a personal favor and make sure that your wife eats, Yom, eats on Yom Kippur. She just had twins, she's a chola, she sakana. Please make sure that she eats on Yom Kippur. Rav uh, Rebelli Horowitz said to him, of course I'll do what the Rav said, but I don't understand why you phrased it and said, do me a personal favor. Well, you should tell you, the is, she should eat. What do you mean by, you said, do me a personal favor? So Revelvel said to him, I know your wife. She's a great Sidkanis. She's a, a, an Enikal. She was a granddaughter of the Adares, a very, very fine woman in her own right and a tremendous Miyucheses. And he said, I know who she is. And she's going to say that she's not going to eat in Yom Kippur. And I'm going to have to go and feed her on Yom Kippur. And I simply don't have the physical strength. I don't have the koach to go on Yom Kippur to feed her. Therefore, I'm going to ask you, please do me a personal favor to make sure that she eats. And therefore, I don't have to come myself to feed her. The hesped that I alluded to before, of course, is a masterpiece that the Rav proclaimed about his uncle that he wasn't the Godol Hador, merely, he was the Yochid Hadar, the one person, the unique person of his time. And everybody who was there remembers the Rav banging on the shtender and screaming, Lo chein avdi Moshe. What made Moshe so unique was that particular phrase, Lo chein avdi Moshe, he was one of a kind. It wasn't that he was greater or not greater than someone else. He was one of a kind. Sui generis. And the Rav said this about his uncle, Lo Revelvel, Lo Avdi Moshe. His Gaonis was unquestioned. His Sitkis and his Mediktukim Mitzvahs are is, is legendary. His personality, where he fought battles, specifically, he was very much opposed to Zionism. Religious Zionism was not in his vocabulary at all. And the Rav somehow had to try to come to grips with that in that particular essay that he wrote about his uncle. These were the unique qualities of the Biskar Rav. Many Svarim were written about him. Many books and many articles and many Hespedim had been printed about him. He himself was not very excited about printing his own Svarim. He was the, the typical brisker tradition was a great reluctance to print their own chidushim. We today have the chidushim agrees on the Rambam. We also have the chidushim agrees on Chumash. Whether people are excited about this svarim is unquestioned. Whether the brisker Rav himself would have been very happy about printing this svarim may be questioned. Rav Zevin, in his book, Ishim V'Shitot, where he mentions the Rav Velvel included in that great list of gedolim that he wrote about in Ishim V'shitot. He wrote about Reb Ezezalman and, uh, and the Nitziv and uh, the Chazonish and Reb Velvel and Reb Chaim. So he says there that per, even if the Biskar Rav wasn't so happy about the Svarim, they just present a tremendous, tremendous uh, resource and asset to the Torah world. The uh, Svarim, I said, will live on forever, but apparently the complete approach to brisk is carried on by the kolalim, by the various kolalim that we find in Yerushalayim. The brisker derech, of course, is legendary and continues to be perhaps the main approach in almost every yeshiva of the world today 
including the Hasidish yeshivas, many of them have already begun to adapt to the Briskaderech. The Briskaderech, the son of Reb Chaim, was the continuation of Reb Chaim. He blazed his own trail in Lamdis. He blazed his own, tra- his own trail in Sitkas and in Chesed. And of course, he will be remembered forever. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. Chana also teaches us that we don't know who and when and why prayers are answered. Sometimes we we face the machzor and we face Yamim Noraim and say, what are my prayers going to make the difference? And we don't always know when and how our prayers make a difference. And I would just relate a story as an introduction to what I want to say now as we stand before Yom Kippur perhaps the most pivotal tefillot of the year. When I was in my senior year of high school, there was some sort of rumor or news item that spread out within the community in Toronto that some group in Syria was planning a pogrom against the remaining Jewish community within Syria. As good idealistic 12th grade boys, we organized the my fellow classmates in Yeshiva High School in Toronto, Shivat B'nai Akiva, Orchaim, we organized an Erev Tefillah, a night of Tefillah, in the community. And uh, there was a nice turnout. And we prayed, and we said to Hillam and uh, the rabbi of the community of the shul that we davened at spoke. We all walked out with a sense of satisfaction and hope that our prayers would be answered. Now, in fact, 12th grade would be 93, 94, None of us recall a pogrom among Syrian Jews at that time. There wasn't. Now, there are two options. Either this rumor or this news item that spread out was completely unbased, or our prayers were answered. It was hard to know if our prayers were answered or not because nothing happened. Perhaps our prayers were answered. If so, matov. Prayers can be answered. Chanat teaches us that prayers can be answered. And we have to take responsibility not only for our families, but we have to take responsibility for (coughs) our entire nation. And it's important for us not to only take responsibility for our nation when we are directly under attack and we are being shot at on the roads or we are being bombed by Katyusha rockets or Kassam rockets, but to be have the midav, who is wise, someone who can anticipate things that are coming. And we don't have to be great geniuses in order to see that there is a nation who is trying to create weapons of mass destruction and has made it quite clear that they plan on using it against Israel. The imminence of the danger is not felt. And yet, it is our duty and responsibility to take this opportunity of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and now Rosh Hashanah is behind us, but Yom Kippur, to pray for the well-being of the Jewish people. And when we say the words in the Machzor, V'chein tzadikim yiruvi ismachu v'isharim yalozu v'chasidim b'rinai yagilu v'olatatik potzpiah 
וכל הרשעה כולה כעשן תכלה כי תעביר ממשלת זדון מן הארץ. This description of rejoicing and happiness that will come and that wickedness will shut its mouth and all evil will disintegrate like smoke when God removes an evil kingdom from the earth. We should be very clear as to who we are praying for because there is a government, a country that is amassing a weapon and has made its intentions very clear. And we should not underestimate their intentions. My father always tells us how in the years leading up to the Second World War, my grandfather pretty accurately predicted what Hitler would do. And not because my grandfather, Zichron Ali Racha, was a prophet or a genius. It's just that he actually believed what Hitler said. And Hitler said what he was going to do, and he did it. And in each stage, whether it was Austria, whether it was Czechoslovakia, whether it was Poland, he said what he was going to do, and he did it. And that made my grandfather a little bit more clever than all the diplomats who uh, were explaining what Hitler really meant was something else. And I think it's wise of us to believe the person who speaks in the name of the country to the east of Israel that is threatening us and believe that he is sincere in what he plans to do. And in that belief, we should take the machzor in hand. We should pray very hard that God should be ma'avir memshalat zadon min ha'aretz, should solve this problem for us in whichever way God chooses to solve the problem for us. And on that note, we should also take the opportunity this year to pray for the water situation in Israel, which is in dire straits. And on that note, I'll take the opportunity to wish all of our listeners and all of Am Yisrael a Gemar Chatima Tova, a Shana Tova, a year of health, happiness, and prosperity, and good news for Am Yisrael as a nation. Shana Tova, Gemar Chatima Tova, Shabbat Shalom.